This Parsha podcast is sponsored by Joseph Hiller. In loving memory of his grandparents, Rela Bastovi and Eliezer Ben Avram, may their souls merit an elevation and an ascension in heaven. I want to focus this week on the central theme of the Parsha, Parsha's Veira, and really the central theme of the book, the book of Exodus. Last week we read how the nation in Egypt is plunged into servitude, they're suffering, they're being oppressed, they're enslaved. Chapter 2, we read about Moshe, Moses being born, the miraculous events of his childhood, and then as an adult, he is sent by God to go save them. And of course, he has that whole week of negotiation. He finally agrees to go, and it's an absolute unmitigated disaster. He does the three miracles to prove his legitimacy to the Jewish people. He throws the staff on the floor, turns into a snake. He sticks his hand into his shirt. It turns white like leprosy. He pours the water onto the ground and turns to blood. The people believe him. And then he goes over to Pharaoh. And incidentally, when he goes to Pharaoh, he does not do any miracles for him. But he presents to him his objective, his credentials, so to speak. And Pharaoh, instead of listening to him, instead of lessening the burden of the Jewish people, he makes things worse. He withdraws the straw, but he maintains the quota of bricks. And that is because he argues, you know, the people are talking nonsense. They must have too much time in their hand. And therefore, they have to work even harder. And the end of the parasha last week, Moshe goes back to God and says to him, why did you make things worse? You sent me to go save them. And now not only am I not saving them, things are getting even worse. And the parasha begins in middle of that conversation. It doesn't appear, at least initially, that God answers this objection. Instead, he says, okay, go back to give more messages, go tell the Jewish people, go speak to Pharaoh. And what is interesting, maybe the first question we could ponder, is that this time it's reversed. In last week's parasha, when Moshe spoke to the Jewish people, he did bring with him some evidence to give him legitimacy. He did those three signs, those three wonders, those three miracles. When he went to Pharaoh, he brought nothing. This time, this week's parasha, it's the opposite. When he goes to the Jewish people to speak to them, there are no signs. But when he goes to Pharaoh, there are signs. He takes the staff, throws it on the ground. Pharaoh, of course, is not impressed. All his necromancers and sorcerers do the same. And then Aaron's staff swallows up their staff. I find it interesting that last week's parasha Moshe is armed with miracles to do for the Jewish people, but not for Pharaoh. When he revisits both the Jewish people and Pharaoh at the beginning of this week's parasha, it's the opposite. And why it is reversed is a mystery to me. If you have an answer, please let me know. My email address is rabbiwalbeijima.com. So he conveys the message to the Jewish people, and the message falls flat. They're so encumbered, they're so inundated with work, they're unable to respond. And I think this raises a second question to ponder. Moshe is told to speak to the Jewish people. Clearly, for the next stage of this process, we need their approval to proceed. Yet they don't even hear the words of Moshe. And afterwards, God tells them, okay, now it's time to speak to Pharaoh. Which is it? Do we need the approval of the Jewish people to go ahead? Or do we not need their approval to go ahead? And that's one of the answers that maybe we'll answer later. If you have another answer, uh, you could email me, let me know. But... In the course of this podcast, hopefully we will answer it. I want to zoom out a little bit and maybe ask some more basic and fundamental questions. 
you know, the book picks up chapter one, the Jewish people are plunged into slavery. And what's not explicit is why this is all happening. What's the purpose of the enslavement? And what's the purpose of the redemption? We read the whole parsha. There's seven plagues. Ostensibly, they're about forcing the hand of the Egyptians to release their Jewish slaves. Yet the more fundamental question is not really addressed in the parsha. Why does the nation have to undergo this entire process to begin with? We believe that our nation was founded at the Exodus. The Exodus didn't happen next week, the following week in the parsha. It couldn't have been another way. Why not? Couldn't Jacob had stayed in Israel and have his 12 sons there and Joseph not sent to Egypt, the nation emerge in that fashion? Why did it have to be that the nation descended to Egypt and they were enslaved and then they were miraculously redeemed? They were miraculously extricated from Egypt and only then they became a nation, then they got Torah, etc., And I think there's many answers to this general question. Why did the nation have to be enslaved? And why did they have to be redeemed in order for the nation to be founded? There's many answers to this question. But first, I think it's important to get some background information. The first reference to the Egyptian enslavement and to the subsequent exodus is found in Genesis, surprisingly, in chapter 15, in a chapter that deals primarily with the covenant of the parts And we're talking about Abraham. And the chapter begins, Abraham is still called Abram at the time. He doesn't get named Abraham until chapter 17. But God is very happy with Abraham and tells him, you should know you're going to have a great reward. At this time, Abraham does not have any children of his own yet. He doesn't have Isaac or even Ishmael. It comes later. And Abraham is obviously beloved by God, but he has no children. And God promises, this is one of the prophecies of of Abraham, God promises him that no, your helper, your aid, your confidant, Eliezer, won't inherit you. Only the child that is born from you will inherit you. And Abraham trusted God. And then God gave him a second promise, not just that he'll have children, but also that he'll inherit the land of Israel, the land of Canaan. And then verse 8, he said, My Lord, Hashem Elohim, Whereby shall I know that I am to inherit it? How do I know that I'm supposed to inherit it? And then we have the covenant of the parts. God tells him, bring three heifers, three goats, three rams, a turtle dove, a young dove. They take all these animals, cut them in half in the center, and place half of each animal on opposite sides. And then you have this very bizarre thing that happens. The birds don't get cut up. The rest of the animals do get up. And Rashi explains all the symbolism that's happening over here. There's birds of prey descending upon the carcasses. And Abraham, Abraham, or Abraham as he's called then, drives them away. And then he's given a very terrifying prophecy. And it happened as the sun was about to set. A deep sleep fell upon Abraham. And behold, a dread, great darkness fell upon him. And God said to Abraham, you should know with certainty that your offspring will be foreigners, will be aliens in a land not their own. And they will worship their masters and they'll be oppressed by their masters for 400 years. But also the nation that they will serve, I shall judge. And afterwards, they will leave with great wealth. This is a chapter that talks about the Jewish ups and downs, ebbs and flows throughout history, the high times, the low times. And specifically, it zones in 
on what's going to happen to the Jewish people in Egypt. Abraham's told that they're going to be foreigners, they're going to be aliens, they're going to have to worship, they're going to serve, they're going to be enslaved to their masters, they're going to be oppressed by their masters for 400 years, but don't worry, it won't be so bad. After the 400 years are done, the nation that enslaves them will be judged, and the people will leave with great wealth. So this is the chapter that talks about, or the first time we read about the Egyptian experience, both the bad and the subsequent good. But what's unanswered in the simple reading of this text is that why did Abraham deserve that? Yes, we're told Abraham is given this prophecy. He's given a prophecy, number one, they'll have children. Number two, that the children will spawn a nation that will inherit the land of Israel. Abraham says, how do I know that I'll inherit it? And God gives him this, I guess it's a mixed bag, this prophecy with all the symbolism of the cut-up animals. And he's told that they're, they're going to be foreigners in a foreign land for 400 years, but then when they leave, things will be okay because the nation will be judged and the people will leave with great wealth. But why did Abraham deserve that? Why? What's the architecture, so to speak, of why this has to happen? And it's fundamental, I think, to our parsha as well. Even though most of our parsha, most of Exodus in general, does not deal with enslavement as much as it deals with redemption, with the plagues and all the events that contributed towards the Exodus, I think if we don't understand the fundamental nature of why we were there, what was the goal, what's the objective, it's very hard for us to understand what is the nature of the redemption. So this is one of the major questions in the book, and I want to go through a very long magisterial essay by the Maharal, one of the great commentators and philosophers of Jewish history, in a book called Givuras Hashem. It's a whole book dealing with the subject of the Egyptian enslavement and the subsequent redemption. I want to go through the highlights of what he talks about in this question, and then I'm going to add a little spin of my own. He begins with a question. And he's going to give us four different answers to this question. And the question is, again, why was Abraham told? Chapter 15 of Genesis, you should know for sure, you should certainly know that your children will be foreigners in a foreign land, they'll be enslaved, and they will be oppressed. Why is Abraham the recipient of this terrible tiding? So he presents three answers, and he's going to provide a rebuttal for all these three answers, and he's going to offer a, a fourth answer based upon the Talmud. So first he quotes the Ramban. The Ramban goes back to the story of when Abraham himself went to Egypt, and there he told the masters that his wife, Sarah, is really his sister, and she was taken by Pharaoh, and she was oppressed by Pharaoh, but Pharaoh himself had to suffer at her hand, and says the Ramban, this is why the Jewish people had to suffer. Abraham made a huge mistake. He sinned by allowing his wife to be taken by the master, by Pharaoh. And therefore, as a result of that, tit for tat, his nation, his descendants, the nation that he's going to father, they're also going to be taken over by Pharaoh. But also when they leave, Pharaoh himself is going to be hit on the way out. That's how he explains the Ramban. And he doesn't like it. Because after all, it seems like Abraham, after he went to Pharaoh and presented Sarah as his sister, if he made a mistake, 
why later on, when he goes to Gerar and has to negotiate with Avimelech, he does the exact same thing. Seemingly, he's doing the right thing. Moreover, Isaac and Rebekah have a similar story, where Isaac presents his wife Rebekah as his sister. And if this was a sin of Abraham, if this was a mistake of Abraham, it doesn't make sense that Isaac would fall into the same trap once again. And then he gives a second answer that was presented by some of the other commentaries. And he doesn't like it. And he actually has a very flowery rebuttal to this answer. And that is that the reason why Jewish people had to be enslaved in Egypt was due to the sin of the sale of Joseph. And if you may ask, why was Joseph himself, who didn't partake in the sale of Joseph, he didn't sin the sale of Joseph, why did he and his descendants have to be enslaved in Egypt? And the answer is because, well, Joseph wasn't free of any iniquity. Joseph did things that raised the ire of his brothers. He spoke negatively about them to his father. And therefore, he was participatory in this grand mistake, this grand sin of the sale of Joseph. And therefore, the whole nation participated in it. And therefore, the whole nation had to suffer. And he doesn't like this, the morale. And he begins his rebuttal by pointing out, you could have a man who colors something on the wall. And from a great distance, the picture or the portrait that he colors on the wall can look like a real person. But once you get closer, it's clear that it's just a painting. Similarly, this answer, it sounds nice from a distance, but when you examine it, it's clearly false. And he explains, you know, Abraham was promised that his his children will be enslaved. That, of course, preceded not only the sale of Joseph, but the birth of Joseph and his brothers. And it's insane to say, says the Maharal, that the reason why the Jewish people descended to Egypt was because of the sale of Joseph, when in fact it's the opposite. The reason why they sold Joseph was to get the Jewish people down to Egypt. So it's not that the sale of Joseph contributed or caused the descent to Egypt. Quite the contrary, the descent to Egypt that was preordained and prophesied to Abraham, that was the cause of the sale of Joseph. And finally, he brings a third answer that he doesn't like. And that's the answer that there's a concept in, in Jewish philosophy called suffering of love, namely that the closer that someone is to God, the more God punishes them, but that's out of love. He doesn't like that either, because if so, it wouldn't make sense for the nation to have so many centuries of suffering. It would only apply when the person who is suffering ultimately reaps the reward. Whereas if you have an entire people suffering for many years in Egypt, and only you know four generations later do they have the exodus, well, then it doesn't make sense. So he doesn't like any of these answers. Instead, he presents a teaching in the Talmud. And the Talmud asks this question in the book of Nadar, page 32a, why was Abraham punished that his descendants, his sons, were enslaved in Egypt for 210 years? This is another side question of the whole parsha. Abraham is told that his children will will be enslaved for 400 years. Ultimately, they're only there for 210 years. And therefore, it's one of the questions to reconcile those two figures. But why was Abraham punished 
that his children were be, will be enslaved at all. And the Talmud gives three different answers. The first answer is Rabbi Avahu, who says, because Abraham conscripted Torah scholars when he went to war. When there was that war in chapter 14 of Genesis of the 14 against the five kings, Abraham's brother-in-law slash nephew was kidnapped. And he hired, or he conscripted, he drafted Torah scholars to go help him in the war. And that was inappropriate. A second answer is in chapter 15 of Genesis, where Abraham questioned God's promise. God said to him, your children will inherit the land of Israel. And Abraham, like we just read in verse 8, Abraham asked God, how will I know that I am to inherit it? I don't get it. If God promises you the land of Israel, well, that's good. You could take it to the bank. Why is Abraham questioning God? Obviously, Abraham is doing a sin by questioning God, and therefore his descendants have to be punished. And finally, the third opinion the Talmud tells, and that is, again, in the episode of the War of the Four Four Kings against the Five Kings, after Abraham is triumphant, the king of Sidon tells him, give me the souls and you will take the money. Abraham wins the war and he's given the ability to partake in the spoils of war, but he refuses it. Says the Talmud, what he should have done, he should have demanded the people. Not to make them slaves, but to teach them about God. Abraham withheld people. He was given the option, at least, of taking people into his camp and by extension to the camp of God. And because Abraham did not try to bring people, to proselytize, to bring people onto the canopy of God, as a result of that, his descendants had to be enslaved, had to suffer, had to be punished. The bottom line of all these three opinions is that Abraham had committed some sort of sin. And because Abraham, he's the root of the nation, therefore whatever misdeed or misstep or slight lack of faith that Abraham had, that actually extended to the nation. If Abraham was flawed, the nation's flawed too. And the Egyptian exile and the subsequent Egyptian Redemption, what we're reading in this week's parsha, they're there to fix these three episodes or the three opinions as to what, what they're there to fix. Either number one, because he hired Torah scholars as soldiers and didn't rely on God. Or number two, because he asked for evidence after God made a promise to him, give me the evidence that God will keep his word. And number three, because he did not take great measures to get as many people as possible under the canopy of God. And the general point, this is a very long essay, and I'm cutting out 99% of it. He goes onto all kinds of tangents and sidetracks and gives another answer. And he ends his piece by noting that all these three correspond to the three things that God promised will happen. If you read the verse in chapter 15, verse 13, critically, God tells him that the punishment is, is a threefold punishment. Number one, your children will be aliens. They'll be enslaved and they'll be oppressed, they'll be tormented. These three things correspond to the three different answers the Talmud gives as to why Abraham was deserving of this punishment. But the bottom line, the grand takeaway, is that the suffering was constructive. And in fact, we have a verse in Scripture, in Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 20, that describes everything the Jewish people went through in Egypt as an iron crucible, says Rashi. What's an iron crucible? It's a vessel that purifies 
gold, meaning Abraham was gold. Abraham's descendants, the Jewish people, were gold. But even gold can have some alloys, can have some impurities. And this experience, 400 or 210 years of Egypt, however long that enslavement happened, that whole process was all about cleansing, purifying, refining the gold that was present. I want to add a little spin to this. You think about it. Abraham is given three promises in quick succession. Number one, you'll have children. Number two, those children, that nation that will be spawned from them, they'll have the land of Israel. Number three, oh, you should know that this will certainly happen. They'll be enslaved. They'll be tormented for 400 years. When they leave, they'll leave with great wealth and the nation that tor- torments them will be judged. What is the juxtaposition of this terrible tiding of the Egyptian enslavement to the momentous blessings that preceded it? Number one. Number two, Abraham seems to be behaving out of character. When Abraham was told the city of Sodom and Gomorrah will be destroyed, he launched into this objection. He starts praying. Abraham here is told that your nation will have 400 years of suffering and does not show an iota of resistance. Why does Abraham accept this verdict against his descendants without any protests, especially given his tendency to intercede on behalf of total strangers condemned to divine retribution? Also, what's this idea? You know, God tells him, your children will be enslaved for 400 years. But don't worry, it won't be so bad. When they leave, after hundreds of years of suffering, the nation will be judged. Oh, we'll we'll get the Egyptians back. We'll have our revenge. Oh, and when they leave, they'll leave with great wealth. Who exactly is signing up to say, give me 400 years of suffering, but then when I leave, I'll be very rich. Doesn't seem to be a consolation prize that's worth the suffering. And with the Exodus story itself, in our parsha, there are some very obvious questions. We have 10 plagues that ostensibly are there to get the Egyptians to let us go, to force Pharaoh's hands. Yet, if you read the description of these plagues, three times it says, And the Egyptians will know that I am God. They're going to be so humbled and pummeled by God, pilloried by God, that it'll become undeniable to the Egyptians themselves that God has total dominion. Apparently, the goal of the plagues are that the Egyptians shall know that I am God. But why is there so much investment in the Egyptians? Why does Pharaoh's heart need to get hardened so that they could suffer more? Isn't this all about the Jewish people? Think about it. If the objective of the plagues is simply to redeem the Jews, after five plagues, you read the scripture carefully, it's clear that Pharaoh wants to let them go. But the Almighty artificially hardens Pharaoh's heart, artificially takes away his ability to choose, and thereby prolongs the experience the Jewish people have in Egypt. Why? Clearly, These plagues are not just about punishing Pharaoh. This is all part of the message given to Abraham. This is all part of the same thing that's happening. And I think more broadly, this whole episode of the Exodus, it's maybe the most central theme in Jewish life. 
We reference it all the time, all the holidays and Shabbos. We remember it twice a day. It's invoked in many other mitzvos. If the Exodus was merely a means to an end, let's redeem the Jewish people from slavery, why do we need to constantly revisit it? So I want to suggest a way to looking at this grand subject. What is the essence of the Jewish nation? The Exodus is building the Jewish nation. What is the idealized version of the Jewish nation? So there's a mitzvah that talks about a Jewish slave who decides after his six-year term is up that he wants to stay as a slave. And the law states, and we'll read this in a few weeks in Exodus, that his ear gets pierced. Why does the ear, the earlobe of a slave get pierced when they want to stay a slave for longer? Rashi tells us there's a rationale for this ceremony. At Sinai, the Jewish people heard with their ears, you are God's slaves. This person didn't hear the message properly because they want to be a slave, not of God, but a slave of a slave. We have an amazing definition over here. The Jewish people, at their peak, at their acme, at their zenith, the idealized version of our nation, the way we were at Sinai, we are servants or slaves of God. We are entirely subjected and subjugated and subservient to God. What does it mean to be a slave of God? It means to totally subjugate our will to the will of our Creator. Abram's given in chapter 15 of Genesis an amazing promise. You will father a great nation. You will father my nation. I will give them my land, the land of Israel. He's being promised at the covenant of the parts, a nation of slaves to God. God says to him, not only will you have this, I will tell you how this will happen. The postscript of the pledge is that you should know that there's some conditions that need to be met before the nation is worthy of having that lofty stature of being the chosen people, of being God's nation. How do you take a nation and make them the nation, the nation of slaves of God? Before that, they have to go through the iron crucible. Before that, a precondition for the people fulfilling their destiny is that they have to undergo centuries of enslavement, centuries of torment in a foreign land. Yes, Abraham was perfect. Almost. He was lacking in faith in a little bit. There was some part of him that was not totally subservient to God. And our sages are looking for the criticism. They find three different slight critiques of Abraham's behavior. He needed to go to war. Who do you hire for war? Well, you either hire soldiers or you hire Torah scholars. Abraham apparently is too fearful to hire anyone besides for Torah scholars, and that seems to indicate that he doesn't believe that God's going to fight for him. For us, that wouldn't amount to much criticism, but that shows maybe a scintilla of lack of faith, of lack of total subjugation to God. God tells him, you're going to have a great nation. They're going to have the land of Israel. How do I know? How do you know? How do you ask the question to God? You only ask the question, God, if there's some amount of faith that is lacking. 
And if you don't take every opportunity to bring as many people as possible under this canopy, that also shows that your faith is lacking. This little bit of lack of faith is transplanted, is transferred, is inherited by the children. This needs to be rectified. The Jewish nation, to get the Torah at Sinai, we have to be complete slaves of God. How do you do that? That is the goal of the Egyptian exile. That's the goal of the Egyptian redemption from the exile. Abraham is told, 400 years, suffering, pain, torment. When you leave, they'll be judged. You leave with great wealth. He doesn't protest. He just takes it sitting down. The answer is that God was telling him exactly how this is going to happen. The way the nation becomes total slaves to God is that first, they have to be total slaves to Pharaoh. And that's accomplished by the 400 years or 210 years, the years that they spent under Pharaoh. And then once they're totally committed to Pharaoh, then there has to be the redemption. Then there has to be the transfer of their allegiances from Pharaoh to God. They suffered centuries of slavery. And that penetrated them so profoundly that they became absolute slaves of Pharaoh. The Exodus represents a transformation. What did not change was the fact that they were slaves, was the fact that they were totally subservient. The only difference is who was the master. Prior, they were slaves to Pharaoh. And at the Exodus, all their loyalty, all their submission transferred to God, they became his slaves. The objective of the plagues and all the miracles of the Exodus is not there to just force Pharaoh to let them go. The Exodus is not just about let's leave, let's free ourselves from the shackles of Pharaoh. It's about transferring the subservience they had to their erstwhile master, to Pharaoh, transferring that allegiance to God. And therefore, Pharaoh had to be subjugated, had to be judged, had to be humbled by his master, which is God. They have to recognize that Pharaoh doesn't really have any power. He's merely a puppet controlled by the higher power. And once they notice that, then they just upgrade their allegiances to God. And that's why it was critical that Pharaoh knew that Hashem is God. Of course, the ultimate objective of the plagues and the miracles, that's the spiritual education of the Jewish people. But the means by which this occurred was, and Pharaoh will know that I am Hashem. Of course, Pharaoh and his cohorts they're swiftly barreling towards extinction anyhow. But the humbling and the lessons that they endured created a lasting impression upon their subjects. What does it mean when after the covenant Abraham's told and also the nation that will slave him, I shall judge, and afterwards they will leave with great wealth? This means that Egypt will be judged, they'll be subjugated to God, And afterwards, they'll leave with great wealth. What does that mean? That's not referring to material wealth. That's referring to the greatest spiritual wealth, the pure, unadulterated, unalloyed gold that emerged from the iron crucible, the nation that's totally subjugated to God. Our project begins, Moshe is sent on a mission. Let's find out if the nation is ready. And Moshe goes and tries to give a message of hope to the people. And they couldn't hear him. They were working too hard to Pharaoh. They couldn't even hear any message 
of hope from Moshe. What that verified is, now they're ready. Once there is no hope left outside of Pharaoh, then, and only then, can the process of transferring it begin. Now that they have no hope at all to anyone but Pharaoh, they're total, total, total slaves of Pharaoh. Now is the time that we could proceed with the next stage is that they yearn for having no hope outside of God. I think this framing of what's happening in the whole story of the Exodus, I think it does give this whole concept more relevance today. You know, it's not just the event that marks the founding of our nation. We were slaves to Pharaoh, now we're slaves to God. But it also reminds us what our nation stands for. The Talmud tells us that each and every one of us have a foreign God within us. Of course, we're subject to God. But there's a pretender, there's a false God living within us. And that's the Sahara. Yes, we kicked our allegiance to Pharaoh. But each and every one of us have a little Pharaoh within us. And I would argue that the model of what is happening to the Jewish people by the Exodus, when they're realizing that Pharaoh doesn't really have any power, Pharaoh is not worthy of our allegiances, we should not submit ourselves to Pharaoh. It was a mistake to realize or to think or to be under the impression that he was worth the effort, that he really had something going for him. That model is really our marching orders every day of our lives. The Talmud tells us that the reason why we have Torah, it's to fight the Yetzirah within us. The reason why we live, the reason why our life has value, it's because we're still enslaved. We still have the enemy lording over us. Of course, it's not Pharaoh, but it's the Yetzirah within us. And that's why it's such an important thing to think about all the time. You know, if the Exodus was just a nice story, that happened many thousands of years ago, we wouldn't need to memorialize it every day. There's a mitzvah to remember the Exodus every day in the morning and at night. And we, we say it, of course, in the Shema. And of course, we're surrounded by remembrances, by memorials of the Exodus. It's not just an event that happened many thousands of years ago. It's reminding us of the critical mission of our lives. Our lives are to kick all those habits, all those masters, all those lords, all those things that we can't do without, all the other deities that dominate our lives. I hope that we take the lesson of the Exodus and we see how when someone was initially submitted to Pharaoh, we kicked it in the past We had the exodus. We were uplifted from being servants of Pharaoh to being servants of God. And hopefully that will extend to us in our own lives to overcome our own challenges, to overcome our own difficulties, to face our inner demons, and to also, again, be triumphant in the battle of our lives. Everyone have a fantastic and wonderful and inspirational and uplifting Shabbos. My name is Rabbi Yaakov Volby. This is the Parsha Podcast. 
I look forward to speaking to you next week.